Today, all over the world, there are thousands of Sino-Soviet intelligence agents with money to burn, looking for unsuspecting targets for exploitation among members of our forces. So, um, Cooper, we have a very special podcast with our special guest, Cooper, today from uh, Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. Right? Did I get that right? You got it right. M U H H. My podcast. My yes. podcast, man. <laughs> Where uh, he's got a lot of great guests, talk a lot of great theory. And um, yeah, so we decided to have a, a little, little different episode today where it's a little more structured, where we're going to like have an actual topic so <laughs> our guest Cooper can uh, go off King. And, uh, you know, we talked about like a while back, you and I, uh, Cooper, you posted something along the lines of like, um, is it, are, is it? Oh, we lost <laughs> <it>. <laughs> Does Matt not have a webcam? I wonder right if now? no, no. Like, it's he's trying his, to conserve bandwidth. You know, I'm oh. wondering if I should. I wonder if I should chop mine off. If that'll help him. Yeah, I'll try. I'll, got, I'll do mine too. He's got fucking robot. Just, uh, just cut out. Yeah. Matthew, are you with us? <laughs> yes. Okay. I okay, said before him, my my computer hates Zoom. So. Okay. Hey, is I'm is Matt to see if that helps? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is Matt's audio really loud to you guys? Not to me, no. Okay. My, I'll just be on mine then. It sounded fine. It okay, sounds cool. fine. What I a great picture. I, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to, I don't want to cut mine off before I explain my. Right. Background. I was like, uh, I just saw like the swastika and I was like, all right. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, also the racist pig. Um, this is, it's like from my research, it's like a picture, like a, a political cartoon. And it's like, I'll get out of the way. It's like, here's the cool Soviet guy. Right. Um, and he's got a nice garden. And these are like the truffle pigs trying to get in. The UK. Oh, right on. Okay. Hitler. Hitler. And, and Japan. Gotcha. Um, Mussolini, uh, weirdly missing. Or, you know, maybe he's just, they, they like to like um, depict him in like diminutive, diminutive ways because they're like, he's just like Hitler's lapdog or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's like saying, yeah, keep out of my garden, no you, yeah. you, you pigs. Um, and yeah, and I, I don't keep this because I think it's funny that they depicted this Japanese guy in a very racist way. It's just part of it's it's history, man. You know, it's from the yeah. It's what I was doing. So we can't uh, we can't tear down dude. our our cartoons. You know what I mean? We, we might forget our history. <laughs> No, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, if we don't have literal cartoons depicting like, like the 1930s racist depictions of Japanese people, like we'll forget that it ever happened. Yeah. So I'm doing my part in preserving that. Yeah. So hopefully uh, the CIA slash FBI doesn't cut me off again while uh, <laughs> right, trying right to bring the middle up of the so you, were, <laughs> that, yeah. you said I was, you said that I had posted something and then I was like, uh, what did I post? <laughs> you put you you asked the question. You said, "Is the cancellation of Freud serious or is it a meme?" Oh yeah, okay. Um, and that was like talking about, I guess, just not only the academia but also like the discourse. You know, sure. trademark the discourse uh, online. And so I wanted to ask uh, now that like I, I guess. I don't know if you've looked into it or not, but like, I wanted to ask, why do you think that people are canceling Freud now? I mean, there, I think a lot, there's a ton and tons of it. Like there's different angles. I mean, first of all, like, I think you have to look at Freud and a lot of thinkers in a, in a dialectical fashion, right? They're not, they're complicated. There's, there's contradiction. And that's like a big part of psychoanalysis as well is just this like, contradiction within the unity of the of the of the subject right like there's not one you know fully developed subject that is um without contra without that contradiction right so i think you have to kind of look at thinkers in that regard and particularly freud because you know i think to some degree there is sort of this dominant discourse with freud and i liken it to um um this is my hot take is this like 
you remember uh, Batman versus Superman? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I felt like that movie got like the discourse about how shitty it was overtook the reality of, of the film. And I think that same phenomenon is kind of what has happened with Freud is like, it's become so detached from the reality of, of Freud's thought and so forth that the story has like taken a, a life of its own on a life of its own rather that, you know, just like <laughs> Dawn of Justice, right? Like there's, there's a lot of good aspects to the movie, but there's, there's some shitty parts as well. And I think to be fair to Freud, um, he definitely has some really fucked up shit that he, that he did. And, but at, at the same time, on like the other side of the coin, I mean, his theorization about the unconscious is incredibly influential. Um, I think you can kind of put Freud, Marx, and like, who's usually, I forget who the third person that you kind of generally associate with modernity itself is kind of those leading thinkers. Marx and Freud are definitely two, two of the three, and I can't remember, if, is, it, is it Hegel or is it Nietzsche that's, Nietzsche that's the third it's uh, probably Nietzsche, right? Maybe Foucault? Well, Nietzsche had the, like, God is dead, you know? So I feel like that would probably be pretty influential. I, f- I forget who it is, but there's, like, uh, there's a saying that it's kind of like the three founding fathers of modernity. It's Freud, Marx, and then, like I said, I'm spacing on the third one. But um... Nick Mullen, I think, is the, <laughs> the third one. Ah, n- very nice, very nice. Um, so, like, that... I think his influence, obviously, in the unconscious is, is tremendous, um, especially when you think about this in the context of, like, the way that, especially here in the States, the way that we're raised is this very, you know, logical process. Um, liberalism is this, thing, like, the market is full of these competing ideas, and the best ideas went out, and there's sort of this idea of, the like rational actor, right? That's taking in data and processing it and making a rational decision, a rational choice based on the data that they're uh, gathering from the world or from the market or from society at large. But I think whenever you, if you'd have that view of society, when you look at our world today, how could you possibly explain it? Doesn't make any, doesn't make any sense, right? People do things that are self-sabotaging they do things that are completely irrational all the time um we are we are definitely not at control of or in control of our unconscious mind or like our our bodies or anything like to the degree in which we're kind of i think ideologically told you know you have this you're like this unified subject that has agency and is rational and everything but like once you get into the world you realize okay wait no how could you possibly explain the rise of Trump through rationality if everyone was making, you know, taking in data and processing it and like making the most rational choice for themselves? Like, I don't think, I don't think the world makes any fucking sense in that way. You know what I mean? Right. At like a certain point you have to, you know, like as like a leftist or whatever, you have to, I, I feel like you have to have at least a little bit of a material analysis, but like, yeah, you're right. If you look at it, if you try to look at it completely rationally you say, well, people do what's in their economic interest, but like, you're right. How, how do, how did we get, how did we get Trump if people only do what's in their, in their interest and if they only act within a rational way. Um, and, and I, I think I like posited this under your, your, your tweet was that it, like, and you said you're an, you were an English major too, right? Yeah. So like, you know, I'm an English major currently, and uh, a lot of the discourse that I've heard in um, in my English classes and my theory classes is that Freud is just about sex. Like that, that's his entire shtick. Like he only talks about sex, and sex is the end all, be all. It's the you know alpha and omega of Freud's theory, right? Um, and I, I feel like that's a, I don't know if you heard that like in your, with your time in. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, you have, I think the, uh, the kind of, he kind of theorizes about the libid, like this concept of libido or libidinal things that are part of the drive. And like a lot of that changes 
over the course of his career. And I think more early on, it was more of a focus on sex and the way that you, you kind of think about it. But with, uh, in 1920, he published the book Beyond the Pr Pleasure Principle, where he really goes more into sort of a reformulation of, of sex itself as being something different than just this like physical act of like penetration or, you know, whatever. Like there's something else going on with sex and it's not just cordoned off to like that physical aspect of it. Right. Because you have all of the, you have fetishes, you have, you know what I mean? Like you don't have a lot of, do you really have control over what or whom you're attracted to or is that being driven by something else? You know what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? Like there's an unconscious aspect to, to everything. And so I think that again is kind of like the meme understanding that is based in like some elements of truth. Mm -hmm. But I think to you're being extremely reductionist if you look at Freud's work in that way. To me, the biggest part of where Freud misses the mark in terms of sex is like he lacks a little bit of a feminist angle or approach. Uh, you know what I mean? With the concept of castration, uh, or not castration anxiety, it was a penis envy is what I was thinking of actually, mm -hmm. which is the reverse of that. So the that sort of being like, and I think Lacan does this as well to some degree is the way that they look at women is is kind of, can be a little bit off-putting, I think, for from a feminist perspective. And uh, I'd really like to talk to a feminist Lacanian, <laughs> to be honest, and get their sense for for what what they think about, you know, what Lacan and Freud have to say of benefit. But it's kind of like essentially women as less than male, like they're um, yes. oh, they sort of I'm lack right. this identity. What's that? Sorry, I cut out for a minute. Um, they sort of lack their own identity. They're kind of cast aside as like not having, not being male. And I don't know, that could be, you know, a historical, uh, historically contingent, you know, gender relations or what have you that have been set us, you know, just by the development of the movement of history led to men being, you know, the more dominant um, sex or gender or whatever the hell you want to say. And, in the context of Western civilization, I think in particular, um, of which Freud is obviously a part of too, right? So, you know what I mean? That is also, Freud's material background is shaping his theory too, um, in that sense, because Freud is like, he didn't come from a very, a super wealthy background or anything like that, but he was going to a pretty prestigious school in, in Vienna to become a doctor and uh, so, you know what I mean? Those, and sort of the 18, what, like the late 1800s or so is when he's, I feel like 1870 or so, 1860 is kind of where he's doing his medical studies there in Vienna. So I think that plays a role in it too, right? That like the conservative culture of that era is going to influence how you view the world. I mean, that's kind of the material force of ideology itself. So I think you have to take that in, into consideration when you're evaluating Freud and, and what he has to say, whether it be about sex or feminism or, or any of it, right? Like he's a product of, product of his era to a large degree. Yeah, didn't he have like a weird relationship with his niece? That's something I hear. Um, didn't he have like a niece that he like would uh, practice on? I haven't, I didn't come across that part. I'm not going to say that that's not something that didn't happen, but I'm, I'm not aware of that directly, but it, it okay. sounds, it sounds vaguely familiar. Um, I, feel like I know like three things about Freud and one of those is that and that may not be true. Like I may have just made that up, but. Yeah, I was thinking, I've, it's funny. I was thinking about Hitler had a niece that he was like weirdly had a strange like relationship with. But I can't, I don't know that very well, very well may be the case with Freud. Um, some of the crazy shit that I did find out about Freud is like, he was definitely a quack, he were, or guilty of quackery with 
with reference to cocaine, which is like the third part of the myth of Freud is like, it's like, he's all about sex. Um, he's not, sci or he's not scientific. Uh, and then he's like this crazy cocaine guy, <laughs> which is kind of true, uh, to be honest, at least from this biography that I read. Let me see, let me pull this up so I can. But like There's real quick, I was going to say about cocaine is like, that's like, again, a product of his time in the sense that like, and it wasn't just back then, like even into like the forties, cause I read a book about uh, like the Nazis and um, like their use of methamphetamine uh, during the war. And it's like this, like these were considered miracle drugs, like cocaine, though by the time, like by the time of the forties, cocaine was sort of considered like more of a, like the Nazis conceived of it as like a Jewish uh, plot to like make people unclean but before that it was like yeah it's like a miracle drug like it's and it's like oh there's no downsides you 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 imbibe it and then like you're really hyper and and cool and your mind expands for a couple hours there's literally no downside and then it's like you know they find out that that's not the case but um yeah i'm not really i like when i hear that like i, I it makes sense to me to become fixated on a substance like that because it's you know, it's sort of like an era of we're like expanding beyond what we think is possible. And, you know, it's also sort of like, in a way, like, uh, uh, I don't want to say arrogant, but in like, a, oh, so, you know, we're going to, you know, there's nothing we can't fix, you know, oh, right. you know, you know, we're uh, whatever, we have this uh, problem. So we'll just, you know, we'll come up with a way to fix it. Oh, cocaine, methamphetamine. Uh, and of course, it can't come back to bite us in any sort of way. Yeah, uh, so the biography that I started reading is called Freud, The Making of an Illusion by Frederick Cruz, which is definitely not the most flattering portrait of Freud at all. And so Cruz basically portrays Freud as wanting to make a name for himself. And the way that he thought he would make a name for himself was by like figuring out a therapeutic use for cocaine, which led him to a couple of like disastrous treatments, um, at least two or three situations where he really fucked up uh, in, in trying to pursue this like kind of like quick get rich quick grift thing in terms of like trying to figure out some type of way to use, use cocaine as like this, or discovering like a, a therapeutic application for it, which is like he had this friend that was addicted to morphine or something and he was giving him cocaine for like for years and would like inject him with co like this cocaine solution and shit. Um, and then this guy just basically just kept like spiraling further and further out of control. Um, but he was friends with him for like, I don't know, at least a couple of decades. And uh, let's see, there was another case where he, this girl had, he treated her for like a couple of weeks and then she ended up dying of cancer like two weeks. And he was like, another thing that comes through in these stories is like Freud is very single-minded and like he refuses to acknowledge that he's made a mistake or that like his treatments aren't working, particularly, particularly in this era where he's prescribing a lot of cocaine to people. Um, but yeah, there's this young woman, he treated her and he was like, oh, thought she was cured. She ended up dying two weeks later of cancer, which they sort of intimated, Cruz intimates that based on the, even at that time, probably they could have diagnosed, he could have diagnosed the, the cancer without issue. Like he could have at least diagnosed it instead of totally missing the diagnosis and then assuming that she was cured and then beyond that once she did die and they found out that it was cancer like he was in denial that 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 was the case so kind of tying or trying to tie freud um to like today's environment i know you mentioned um that the logical mind can't explain trump and trying to do is kind of like futile but um, what do you think about uh, like psychoanalysis as it stands today? Because um, I know basically just to prepare for this, I was reading this article from the New Yorker and they were talking about like there was this big movement, I think it's in the 60s or 70s, basically to debunk Freud 
and say we didn't need him at all. Um, And I think Matt uh, was seeing that happen, happen again in today's society, but is psychoanalysis like, one, is it real? <laughs> um, and two, like, how does it help us explain the environment we're in right now? I mean, so I know I have friends that are actual analysts. So I have two sets of friends that are interested in psychoanalysis. And this is really the field itself, too, is kind of like broken up between your actually practicing analysts that are seeing patients and the theoretical side of that. So um, oftentimes they're studying like films or, or cultural products or moments, um, events, et cetera, through a psychoanalytic lens, right? So those are kind of the two streams of thought when it comes to our practice, really, when it comes to psychoanalysis. And so the, the analysts that I know, let's see. So psychoanalysis doesn't claim to offer a cure. And I think that's something that's kind of a, there's a, a bias, I think, against psychoanalysis in the States for that reason. Um, you know, the, the mood in the U.S. was always one of like pragmatism and positivism and science, like being the dominant methods of, of thought in the States. So something like psychoanalysis doesn't fit within that within that framework right because how do you you can't really disprove a psychoanalytic theory um and science itself is science claims objectivity so psychoanalysis is all about the analysis of of the subject of the individual's experiences and thoughts and behaviors etc right so you can't really do, you know what I mean? They're sort of incompatible. And I think that's something that really devalued. That's why psychoanalysis is devalued more so in the U.S. than it was. It was much bigger in, in Europe and particularly in France um, until I think like right around the, the 80s, the 90s or so. That's when psychoanalysis kind of really falls out of fashion significantly. But I think, particularly in the U.S., it's, it has a lot to do with being incompatible with this kind of rationalist approach to, uh, to the way that the world operates, you know? And, and I think yeah, so I'm not, I'm not super familiar with, like, psychoanalysis. Uh, my, like, involvement in therapy or whatever, just as a patient, is uh-huh. usually, uh, you know, the psychiatrist or psychologist will just do what they call um, cognitive cognitive CBT, yeah. uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Is that a type of psychoanalysis or is that totally different? Ooh. It, I, I think, I don't know that much about CBT to really comment, comment on it that accurately. I, like, I would assume there may be some overlap in, in the Venn diagrams of what those are. But I think the difference being this notion of like, a cure or is you know what i mean like like yeah, there's this mm-hmm. so it's like in the the paradigm of it is the approach to mental health in the states is like for you to be a productive worker more so than it is you know what i mean and it's also this yeah. very like commodified issue where instead of and you know beyond cbt like most people are just subscri- uh, prescribed antidepressants or like there's a drug like there's a pill for the you know what i mean so it's like mm-hmm. take take the, buy this commodity um and you'll be cured is is the promise yeah i know i know matt can prop he's he's explained this to me a couple times about how he felt like doing cbt or talk therapy with with people um just it hasn't worked for him that much and honestly the medicine probably helps more even though it does have those negative side effects. And I like the point you brought up about how CBT and doing therapy within like a capitalist system, it's all about um, a logical cure. Like literally I have a book that I was given by one of my psychologists and it's called like 
it basically is a book saying this is a, a way, a systematic way to cure yourself of depression. And um, I think you probably agree that that's a, a dangerous way to look at it because especially it could be even more discouraging to a patient if, if instead of focusing on like uh, just getting better at like incrementally, you know, like finding those small victories instead of, okay, I'm broken because I'm feeling this way. So obviously there has to be some cure for that. And if I never stop feeling this way, then I'm just, you know, I'm worthless to society because I'm not a functional person. I can't work as well or do things as well as other people. So my value to capitalism is less. Um, so it sounds, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're saying psychoanalysis takes closer to the view that it's all about like self-discovery and improving yourself incrementally. You're not going to be, and it's a continuous process that keeps happening over and over because we'll never actually get rid of our neuroses. Is that a good, is that the proper way to look at it? Or is it a little more nuanced than that? I mean, I think that's a pretty good Exam- I mean, it's, there's a little bit more nuance, I think, to it, but I think oh, that's not a bad approximation of, of, of kind of the idea. The idea of psychoanalysis is kind of give you the tools to like be able to recognize why, cer- why you pr- have certain feelings or behaviors and try to like give you an understanding of that so that you can like, you know, figure it out to where you're not going to totally... Uh, fly off in like this wild chase for for like be controlled by desire and just like going on this totally self-destructive path right like the a lot of times psychoanalysis are, are trying to have you kind of stabilize your orbit <laughs> so that you're not you know like i said going down a, a dark path but i know plenty of analysts or a couple of analysts you know they take someone who comes into the office that's suicidal and you know they can through talk therapy help them make connections um, that help that help that patient. And um, so I, I don't think you can discount the practice entirely. Um, I mean, I have, I've never done therapy myself of, of any kind. I've not done any, never been prescribed antidepressants or anything like that. So I don't have any direct experience with that, but um, I definitely have, you know, two or three friends that are either practicing analysts they see patients or they're integrating psychoanalysis and different approaches into their sort of more broadly like therapeutic strategies. So Matt's audio keeps cutting out, but he, he texted a question uh, that he wanted to ask you. So I'll just read out loud so the listeners can understand what's going on. So uh, Matt says, Cooper, do you follow Ashley Frawley? She describes the way in which the therapy industry just pushes pills instead of treating the root causes. I think Freud tries to get to the root. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I'm not, I'm not familiar with her, but I mean, I, I definitely think so. And I mean, again, you have to like contextualize Freud, right? Like there's not really that many thinkers before Freud. I, I won't say that he's necessarily, I'm not sure if he's necessarily the first to fully describe the unconscious, but he's definitely one of the, one of the early people to theorize in that realm. And I think, again, it's like, how do you, looking at the, the issue is like, is there a, is there a teleology to this as far as like, is there an endpoint to, to this, or is this just like a, a syndrome that, you know what I mean? That we just sort of have to, have to learn to figure out strategies to deal with rather than like, oh, we're going to solve this problem with a pill through like this commodified exchange right like i'm not saying that like in all cases drugs might not work like there could be a combination of drugs and and therapy that might work for someone or you know one or the other but i think psychoanalysis can definitely help people um but even to get beyond that like there's different approaches within psychoanalysis um you have of course, Freud, but there's plenty of other thinkers, like actually like most people that practice psychoanalysis are drawing m- more from Freud or people that were influenced from Freud than from say, I mean, even though Lacan had his own school, like 
most analysts today are not like doing uh, Lacanian psychoanalysis, though there are some, right? But it's not like the mainstream or they, people may draw from Lacan here and there to some degree. And then you even have, you know, people like Felix Guattari that, you know, an, you know, he wrote Anti-Oedipus with Deleuze and that's totally going in on, on psychoanalysis at least in terms of the way it was, uh, had it come to kind of like dominate France within the 50s, 60s, 70s era. Um, so we'd be remiss if we didn't get more into Lacan. And I think Lacan is a person a lot of people have heard about, but might, and at least in my instance, don't know much about him. Um, so if you could quickly just kind of sum up like why Lacan is important and um, how you ended up becoming the young Lacanian. <laughs> uh, so Lacan, essentially what Lacan really is doing, and, and this is a little bit reductive, but I think it, it mostly fits, is Lacan is sort of remixing Freud with structural linguistics and primarily through, let's see, it's uh, Ferdinand de Saussure, who was, I believe, an anthropologist in the early, like, 20th century, late 19th century. And uh, it's, it's that thing with, with signifiers and, and signifieds, right? And this sort of, this gap between the object that you're trying to encapsulate with a signifier and, and that signifier itself, right? So there's that that gap between the real object as it exists and the concept that is where sort of um like lacan posits this lack and he's basing it on this idea of of that gap in between signifier and signified and so basically there's there's surplus meaning that is that is always escaping the signifier it, the the signifier can never capture the entire essence of of an object right like there's always surplus meaning escaping so this is a huge thing for lacan in his theory of desire because he posits we always are starting at sort of this point of of negative one where we are we are missing like there's a there's this sort of whole gap within our subjectivity that causes um, desire itself that's where desire comes from is that strange gap in in language which i think is super fascinating so how this gets applied is I'm trying to think of a good example let me see i might have one in my notes because this shit gets confusing whenever you're talking about psychoanalysis that's one of the most frustrating parts or like you can get yourself tangled up because oftentimes there's a contra there's a weird contradiction or reversal of what you would typically think you're, you're telling me lacan's diagrams can get confusing <laughs> no <laughs> i mean even freud gets it can get kind of tricky Uh, Matt, while he's looking that up, how did you get into Lacan and why is he important to you? Uh, I don't know much about Lacan. Uh, I know a little bit more about Freud, but that's because of uh, being an English major. Um, Does that have to do with more like psychoanalysis when it comes to critiquing literature? Yeah, uh, he talks a lot about dreams and dreams are a very important um, aspect of literature. And also, uh, just like we talked earlier, I think that um, I think that there are some things that you just can't really explain. And instead of being like completely unmaterialist and being like, okay, well, there's like yeah, we lost him again. Damn, he's about to tell a really good story. <laughs> I know. Right? Every time he's a, it's a setup, and then boom. <laughs> Anyway, did you find the in your notes, Cooper, what yeah. you're looking for? Yeah, so I guess to back up, so another aspect of Lacan where he's applying this kind of structuralist linguistics to 
psychoanalysis is in the way that our subconscious or unconscious rather is structured through symbols. And so those symbols and like our needs and, and wants and desires, they, they get mixed up and we can't fully. So when we express a want or something where it's getting sort of like language is a filter that that need or want is, is passing through. And in that passing through that filter, it gets, the signal gets tangled up or like associated with, it takes weird forms, right? So then your expression of that need doesn't reflect what the like underlying need actually is or want or, or what have you. And it has this like, very contradictory relationship because when it comes to desire, it's satisfied by not being realized. Like you can never, you can never satisfy your desire. Like that's an impossibility. It's only through that not being satisfied that you get enjoyment. So how this relates, I think most, like what's most important about this idea is how this relates to capitalism because what capitalism promises is, okay, here's this commodity. If you consume this commodity or you achieve this thing, then you will be a complete person and your lack will be fulfilled. Your desires will be fulfilled. But if you ever achieved, like if that ever happened, then the entire system itself would collapse because you wouldn't need anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, the end result that, uh, capitalism says is that the very thing we're all striving for would create make it um uh, obsolete like that no one would need to work we wouldn't need to buy anything um i mean you can just see like in a very small glimpse of that happening during coronavirus when when people weren't out there purchasing things that they didn't actually need but they might have desired the, the whole system shut down and freaked out we had you know, millions of job losses just because people couldn't buy like the random Nike shoes that they thought would fulfill them or because they're, ha you know, out of material necessity, like saving their money and not going out to places because they, they might die, which <laughs> is serious stakes. Um, so I guess, yeah, let's, let's, now that we've brought up capitalism a few times, let's get into how does like the leftist framework um, I'm trying to see how Matt phrased it. Oh, he said, how can a leftist materialist view fit within the framework um, of a psychoanalytic framework? So I think that for one, Marx didn't really ever, Marx didn't have a theory of mind. Marxism isn't a theory of mind. It's like a political, political economy. And so there's a space there for psychoanalysis. Another thing is the kind of overlap in terms of there are a few other things that have such a great examples of theory and practice in the, like in the real world, right? Like the practice of, of Marxism in the real world had, you know, Soviet union, et cetera, et cetera, right? The practice of psychoanalysis, like it's, it is materializing whenever the analyst is working with an, with a patient. So they have that similar relationship. Psychoanalysis analysis can fill in the gaps that, Marxism leaves because it doesn't address, it doesn't indiv address individual experience or subjectivity in that same way. Um, other than like, what is it? Is it a like false consciousness? It's kind of like the only time false consciousness is like one of the only times. And I, I don't, I can't remember if that's even Marx that talks about false consciousness. I think where Marx is most psychoanalytic and where the cross, the, sort of tying the thread that binds them would be in like commodity fetishism because that's where this the same sort of relationship between desire and object of desire get preyed upon by by capitalism and so whenever people are saying that capitalism is is in sync with human nature i think that they're right in the sense that Capitalism is taking advantage of our lack of our, the way that our desire operates to perpetuate itself. 
do you think, and this is just something I was thinking about just now, do you think that um, in the act of like self-realizing and having after reading Lacan and understanding desire, have you seen that change the way you view desire in your own life? Or are you still like in the same spot you were before where, you know, like it's this never ending, uh, just, I don't know how to phrase it, but you kind of get what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. No, how, how does it change your actual actions <laughs> in life? Right. I, I don't know that it has, to be honest. Um, <laughs> but cause for me, I, I have always, or not always, but I think more recently viewed desire as this prison house of, like I call it the prison house of desire because simply because it, it cannot be fulfilled and you're like, you're forever chasing different objects, whether it be, you know, commodities or, you know, career attainments or like having the right sexual partner, or having the right girlfriend, boyfriend, friend, car, like there's infinite numbers of things right that that tr capitalism says hey if you if you work hard you get this your desires filled but you know as you can see like that that doesn't happen right so i don't know lacan has this notion of like never give ground relative to your desire which is sort of like okay you need to own the fact that you desire own and recognize the fact that your desire is infinite and that you cannot fulfill it and don't let you know what i mean be honest with that with yourself in a sense like desire is not some something that can be cured it's not something that can be overcome it it simply is we as speaking beings as you know as subjects you know desire is desire sort of is constitutive of our subjectivity period so I don't know if I've quite been able to internalize that approach to desire, but I think it's, it's fascinating to think about. And um, I don't know, desire through Lacan, I think is one of the most fascinating things that I've like ever encountered in terms of thought. But I wanted to back up too in the sense of like, of how desire functions. So a, a perfect way to think about the way that desire functions would be buyer's remorse like that's something we've all experienced right it's like you save up money for this object that you you know you want this thing for so long or like you you wrote to santa claus about it and then like christmas morning comes and you open up that gift and you have the thing but it doesn't fulfill your lack like you know what i mean it there's just a, there becomes a new object of your desire and so on and so on so it's like this endless repetition of chasing that object of desire Cole, do you have anything uh, you want to ask Cooper? Uh, I want to, <laughs> on behalf of myself, I didn't have stuff. I just got passed by. My girlfriend literally heard we were talking about this and then spent uh, basically being like, oh, well, uh, let me tell you about this, but uh, in a female voice. And I had to like literally pick her up and move her from the room so that I could pay attention. Um, <laughs> I had a funny thing I was going to say about um, like this is Sopranos and therapy because I, but I, but like not just funny, but like if we're talking about like, especially how like therapy sort of exists within like capitalism is like, like that whole series. And again, I'm like, I know Sopranos isn't like real life, um, but I'm treating it like a primary source right now. But you know, the whole source is like, the whole source the whole series is like um like the therapy that he that tony goes through um like we see the sort of all the we see like he takes the antidepressants he he sort of is is you know talks through all these issues he has and at the end of it he like those things still exist like these underlying anxieties and issues that he have uh still exist but he just become more efficient at like managing them. Right. Right. Which, so um, he's more efficient at managing and that helps him become like better at like the job he does. Right. Which is like 
if he's like a like a like a librarian, like that's a great thing. But <laughs> yeah. the fact that he's like a mob boss means that he just becomes more efficient at managing his like gang of like sweaty Italian American murderers. So it's just this interesting, um, like he goes through the whole process and never like because it doesn't seem like the lens is placed on uh, like the morality of his actions because. In that setting, it's like that doesn't come into play, um, which I don't know if it's like a good or bad thing. But it, and because it doesn't, then he's never really forced to uh, address the fact that the things he does are wrong. Like the, the fact that he kills people is wrong, and that, but that that never comes into play. It's more just about who he is and like his um, personal uh, issues or whatever. I don't know. I don't know if that's interesting to bring up. But, no. Yeah, um, I think it is. It for, it for sure is. So I think like your the way that you said, like, so he's getting more efficient in dealing with his neuroses. And I think maybe that's what psychoanalysis can do is help you kind of like recognize and come to terms with your neuroses and give you strategies to better manage them so that you can kind of like not spiral out of control and, and like maybe stop doing, you know, recognizing like why you're doing these repetitive self-harmful behaviors or whatever and kind of like bringing that awareness and kind of like making that connection between these disparate things in your life or your experience that kind of like this light bulb comes on and you're like oh okay I get I get why I'm I'm behaving this way or why I always seek out a type of uh, a type of relationship that is abusive or like this type of thing that I'm constantly every partner that I have exhibits this type of behavior. Okay. Like, why is that? And trying to understand, okay, what is it about me that leads me to make this choice consistently in my life? How can I, you know, strategize and, and be better at making decisions that sustain me and don't like drive me into this kind of spiral of, of like coming to pieces. Um, I, I, yeah, that's, um, uh, other than you know me, of course, bringing up Sopranos, I do it whenever I can. Um, I had a question about like, and so this is something I've heard before. And I know we we're not necessarily on Freud anymore, but I, because like for me, uh, learning about Freud is that he it, it's taught. Um, I, I feel like that Freud gets taught a lot as someone who is um, like we've moved past him or he's been debunked as far as that goes, which yeah. I feel like, I don't know if it's possible to debunk like the concepts he's talking about. Cause right. they're not like, um, but I was, my, yeah, I guess I, I, my question is like, like, is he debunked or is it possible to even debunk that sort of thing? I mean, I think even Carl, Carl Popper, like the logical positivist said that a lot of Freud's theories are like, can't be debunked because there, there's no like way how do you how do you objectively address a subjective experience you know what i mean like i said earlier the whole idea of science being is to remove the subject to remove like the contingency of the subject and use this objective lens to you know what i mean to repeat this thing but if individual experiences are varied and different then how can you ever you know what i mean so I think maybe some elements of Freud could probably be better theorized. I don't know if I would say, you know, I'm sure maybe there's something that is technically kind of debunked or better theorized later by other people or even Freud himself. Like I said, he kind of, um, after 1920 in particular, when it comes to sex, definitely like takes a different, a different track with uh, beyond the pleasure principle and the like theorizing on the, the death drive, which I think is probably one of his most relevant and salient topics for our era. And I also think just beyond the, if you've already read some of Freud, I think beyond the pleasure principle is, is a good one to check out. What is the, you mentioned the death drive. Well, can you sum that up if, if it's not a big deal? Oh man, I always, Death Drive is so fucking hard. It's it's weird because it had it's very similar to Desire, except so with with Desire. So with both Desire and the Death Drive, 
you're, you're not obtaining the object that fulfills your lack and satisfies your desire, right? So like in, in both sense. But in the way that they operate is it's similar, but it's slightly different because for desire, the movement is sort of lateral. Um, it's, it's metonymous. Um, so you go from like this thing to thing to thing to thing to thing and sort of this horizontal movement versus the death drive is like you circle the object forever. Like there's a sort of repetition over and over and over again. So um, little rituals that you have, maybe like smoking cigarettes or something like that, or little you know, little habits or rituals that you do that you're always doing constantly or just these like things in your life that you find yourself repeating. Again, like let's say you have a particular type of romantic partner that you're always like, you're always winding up with these same types of people, right? So that's like sort of an expression, I think, of the death drive, but I don't even know if that's quite getting at it that well. Like are they like these rituals? Are they inherently self-destructive, or is that just one no, aspect I, of it? I I don't think so. They're not they're not always self-destructive, but it's I've heard like again something like smoking a cigarette. Um, you know, it's like the ritual of smoking the cigarette has more significance than the physical aspect of it. It's like a, it's a the, there's an unconscious thing going on there, and that extends to a, a t like a lot of things. So um, apply that to food. Apply that to sex. We don't really we don't need sex to survive. We don't need tasty food to live. Like we could survive off of bland food. We can survive off of bread and water, right? We can survive without sex, but our enjoyment of food and Be sex. And <laughs> and drugs and and things like that is, it's very much tapped into the unconscious. Yeah, it says it's the opposition between the ego or death instincts and the sexual or life instincts. It says he used the plural a lot instead of just singular death drive. He used death drives a lot of times in his writing. Um, before we go, Cooper, we're about wrapping up. Um, I have two more questions for you. Uh, it's kind of short. So for our listeners who might be interested in learning more about psychoanalysis, is there a book or a resource that you would recommend someone start off with if they're going to get into that kind of thing? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I would honestly, for someone who's just not, just like getting themselves interested on the topic, I would recommend checking out, there's a podcast, Why Theory, with uh, Todd McGowan and Ryan Angley that I listened to that kind of helped me, that kind of sparked my interest in the topic. So I, I think I would recommend checking out that podcast and seeing, um, because they cover a number of, they're more so, I think Todd McGowan more so is focused on Lacan and Hegel, but they do talk about psychoanalysis broadly, including Freud, including like aspects of like why Freud um, shouldn't be just totally dismissed as well. So I would maybe give that a try and see, because they'll have resources or they'll kind of like at least make the topics accessible enough so you can say, okay, like this is something that interests me. I can, you know, take that and run with it and then move, you know, move forward into readings because, uh, as far definitely when it comes to Lacan, Lacan is even Todd McGowan is like don't and don't even have my students start out reading like primary sources for Lacan. So um, shit, there's a book that I got recommended by one of my analyst friends. Hold on just a second. And when it comes to Freud, this is probably the one that he recommended starting out with. So hold on just a sec. Let me log out of that Twitter. I know. Where's my phone? Psychopathology of everyday life. That's the one. Um, it's a. It's an essential volume for understanding psychoanalysis. So maybe when it comes to Freud or getting dipping your toes in that water, 
that probably be a good place to start. Once you've kind of like, like I said, I would check out Y Theory. Um, trying to think what else. Yeah, because Y Theory covers a pretty good ground in terms of Zizek, Lacan, Freud, other psychoanalysts too. Um, but I would recommend y'all might want to talk to some actual analysts that could be really valuable um, if you have an interest in like pursuing this conversation with somebody who's a, a lot more knowledgeable about the actual practices itself. So I have a, I'm friends with um, Elliot Rosenstock and he wrote a book, Zizek and the Clinic. I had him on my podcast and he's a really fun, interesting guy. Um, that was a great episode, by the way. Oh, thank you. And uh, he's on Twitter. He's like control, return, repressed is his at. Um, there's also Neil Gorman, who I've also had on the podcast as well. He has a podcast from 78 is the name of the podcast, but I don't know if he really talks much about psychoanalysis, but we did an episode together as well. And then my other friend, um, I call him DC. He's at 4Q248. He is studying to be an analyst and he's a super interesting guy. He's very much into like uh, accelerationism and stuff, but he's extremely well-read, very articulate, has a practice. Um, he uses a lot more Freudian concepts. Um, but there are also like, there's plenty of other analysts that you can delve into. Like uh, there's a Whitehead, there's Beyond, there's um, Laplanche. Laplanche is a Lacanian, but he's he writes a lot more clearly. So those are those are good people to look into. Um, let's see who else. There was like Joan Kopchek is a like feminist Lacanian. Uh, let's see who else is there of interest. I feel like there's one other person that I'm forgetting, but I don't know. Those are all good resources. Um, but one thing I wanted to talk about too, just really quickly. Is uh, are, are any of you familiar with Preacher, like the, the comic or the TV series? I've read like the first volume of the comic. Yeah, vaguely. I know that there was a show on AMC, but other than that. So I had this idea. I was watching the show with my roommate about a, within the last month or so. And so the preacher's power, he, the preacher has this power called the word. And so he can basically command you. He can make a demand, and this is this is psychoanalytic language too. It's like he makes a demand, and then the person has to do what he says. But the interesting part about that is that gap between what he's telling them to do and how they interpret what he's saying. So, in the show, at least, there's this character that. Is he's having issues with his mother and she's being very demanding and like abusive to him and like this weird Oedipal shit, right? And he's always like bugging the preacher. He's very neurotic about it. And the preacher tells him something like, be patient and open your heart. And he says that with the power of the word. So what happens is this guy interprets this as he, he goes, gets on a plane, flies to his mother says hello to her and then like jabs himself in the chest with a knife and cuts out his heart and hands it to her. And I think that's just, that's just super interesting in the, in the ways that like, okay, our, our unconscious needs get mixed up in, in language and how that sort of that miscommunication, that gap between the signifier and signified plays itself out. I think that's a super fascinating thing to or way to approach that show that um that that reminds me or that's i mean that's literally the power of if you watch the first season of jessica jones on netflix the oh, yeah. power of the villain in that show yeah. um basically has that they're like it's not like they don't give it a cool name or whatever in fact they kind of like give it a stupid explanation why he's able to do that but yeah he like tells people to do things um, and they just do it like, like for instance, he tells uh, one side character, like put a bullet in your head and she, you know, tries to shoot herself with a revolver, but there's no ammo in it. Right. So she <laughs> starts to like 
try to put like literally pick up a bullet and put it in her head and then eventually she, like puts it in her mouth and it's like oh it's in my head now <laughs> that resolves the the like the that satisfies the order i guess and so yeah. that works yeah but um yeah it's not cool like he doesn't have the word it's just like yeah because it's like marvel and netflix they have to like have something in there that's dumb and ruins it kind of but um yeah i, I guess um it is interesting because it's like, you know, there's like, it's like a translate, almost like a translation going on between, uh, like, I feel like most people would assume that like, um, there's like a definite one-to-one meaning to everything they say, right. but there's, it, you know, communication and like, um, yeah, it goes, basically goes through a, like a translation, like a filter. Um, and once it gets to that person, then it's like, um, what they pull from it may be wildly different than like what you intended. Yeah, but. exactly. And that really, that especially gets to how Lacan views the unconscious and, and language in that like your unconscious mind desires X or is trying to express this need, but then it gets all mixed up. And whenever you actually like make the enunciation, the demand, it comes out as something entirely different. And so the role of the analyst is kind of like to try to figure out okay, what, like, to kind of trace back, okay, what is the, what's the unconscious thing here that's happening that's creating this behavior or whatever? And and that's kind of like a quick and dirty <laughs> explanation. It's but also... One that I think is super good to, like, conceptualize it, at least broadly. It's also kind of funny because uh, I guess he would be, he's he's kind of like a Lacanian character in that he can do, he can ask for whatever and someone has to do what he says, but he never gets what he wants. Like he always wants, he always wants Jessica to give herself of her free will, but she can never do that because it's always him that's influencing her. Yeah, absolutely. That's a perfect, like that contradiction is so much of what desire and at least Lacan in particular is talking about. And and this even goes to Hegel to, um, to even back up further as like people, I think Hegel is underrated in the sense of how much he dealt with, with how consciousness works and like this contradiction. And that's why, so whenever Lacan was young, he would go attend these, um, they were lectures by, uh, it's, it's Koheva, Kojeva, I think is maybe how you pronounce the name, but was a Hegel scholar in France during the early, like, I don't know, the thirties, the forties, the fifties, somewhere in there. So Lacan got his Hegel through through uh, Kojeva or Kohave. So Hegel very much influences Lacan, even though Lacan probably wouldn't have ever said that or like acknowledged that too much. Lacan was more of a fan of Heidegger and phenomenology, which is super interesting. We have to, um, I don't know if you, I don't want to take your time up, but there's some really funny stories about Lacan personally. Some really, there's some really funny stuff. So Lacan had a, he had like two families. So he was, there was this whole thing. He didn't want to like divorce his wife because of, I forget, like, I don't know, it's like cultural reasons or like the war, World War II was going on or something. And so he like stayed married to his wife, but he was also like in love with uh, Sylvia Bataille. And there's a funny story about how like Lacan is driving his car by and he sees like one daughter and like daughter like waves at Lacan and he doesn't even acknowledge her. And he has like, he has like his other family, his other set of kids in the car with him and just like drives on. And that's how this kind of like, whole situation blew up between <laughs> between his new lover and his his former wife that's pretty nuts um what else there's uh he hated to stop at red lights and stop signs and shit and so if you were if he was like riding with you in your car and you stopped at a red light he would get out of the car and wait for you at the other side of the street that's uh, some also, nutty shit right there yeah <laughs> just like <laughs> He used to love to drive really fast. And uh, one time he's like driving with Heidegger and Heidegger's wife and she's getting like freaked out because he's Lacan's hauling ass in his car. 
but he doesn't care. He just like is driving and rattling off all this shit. It's pretty funny. Um, so another really interesting thing is that Watari was a student of Lacan's, and I believe the story goes that Watari paid Lacan to let him be his driver. So be like he paid Lacan money <laughs> to to for Lacan to let Watari drive him around. Oh wow, that's how afraid he was. <laughs> and then whenever, uh, like I said, so Watari was a student of his. So whenever they were getting ready, Deleuze and Guattari were getting ready to publish Anti-Oedipus, uh, Guattari shows Lacan, and Lacan gets fucking, he flips out and basically tries to ruin Guattari's career and was, like, highly pissed off. And that was, like, the breakdown in their relationship, essentially, because of the publication of Anti-Oedipus, which isn't even that. Like, it critiques Lacan in a sense, but it's not anywhere near like this, like scathing approach to it. But it's, that's kind of an interesting history too. Well, uh, thanks for your time, Cooper. And thanks for sharing all this really insightful stuff that I like before this didn't really have a lot of knowledge about. It's, it's like I said, it's stuff in our society and our, just our culture that we always hear about and almost like buzzwords, you know, um, it's Freudian, it's a Freudian slip or yeah. Um, all these things that are just always in the background but are never really explained to us so um, yeah thanks for the time taking the time out of that everybody go ahead and check out Cooper's podcast uh, Cooper remind us the name of your podcast it's Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour I'm hosted on SoundCloud but it's also on iTunes like I mean if you just google Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour it should be on pretty much every platform 